0: On January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. On the authority of the President of the United States of America, Lincoln declared the legal end to slavery in the States. As the President, Lincoln had the authority, or right, to proclaim all slaves freed. However, in the southern states, he didn't have the power to physically bring an end to slavery. As you probably know, the American Civil War continued for another two years after this proclamation. The president had the authority to proclaim this new legal reality, but it would take years to bring it into effect. He had authority but he lacked power. Because power is the exercise of authority. If authority is the right, then power is the ability. And of course, we acknowledge the good of aspiring that all people would be treated equally under the law, given what they're due as made in God's image. But we also acknowledge the limits of one who has authority And not power. And I think it raises a question for us this morning to consider Does anyone have authority and power? In Mark's gospel, we're seeing Jesus came into the world with authority. In the first three chapters of his gospel, Mark has been telling us that Jesus has authority. Authority to teach, authority to forgive sins, authority even to cast out demons. As we've moved into chapters 4 and 5 these past few weeks together, we've seen demonstrations of Jesus' authority, his power. We're seeing Jesus' ability to accomplish all that he determines by right. Mark gives us first in chapter 4 the powerful teaching of Christ about his kingdom. Then he begins to show us the power of Christ in action. First with the storm-stopping miracle, and then with three more scenes in Mark chapter 5. In all three, Mark shows us that Jesus has both authority and power to overcome all the problems in this sin-stained world confronting all of the effects of sin on this world with the power and presence of his kingdom. If you thought the storm-stopping miracle was a big deal, just wait till you see what happens next. He stopped the most powerful thing in our world, but what will happen when he meets something powerful from another world, so to speak? Don't think he's only in control of the things you see. Because he's also in powerful control of the things you can't see. Listen to God's word in Mark chapter 5 as I read. We'll consider the whole chapter this morning. But I'm going to first read verses 1 to 20, the first section, which we'll consider first. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately... and cutting himself with stones and when jesus saw from afar he excuse me and when he saw jesus from afar he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice he said what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high god i adjure you by god do not torment me for he was saying to him come out of the man you unclean spirit down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What I want to argue for us from this whole chapter this morning is this. Jesus has the power to make anyone well. Well, See, if Mark has told us Jesus has authority, now he's showing us that authority through demonstrations of his power in teaching and saving. In chapter 5 specifically, Jesus repeatedly shows us his power to purify this world by the presence of his coming kingdom. Jesus has the power to make anyone well. There's no one beyond his power to help to heal, or to save. How do we know? We'll see it demonstrated in three scenes in the text. Three triumphs where King Jesus conquers all rival powers. First, Jesus overcomes demons in verses 1 to 20, which we just heard. Next, Jesus overcomes disease in verses 21 to 34. Finally, Jesus overcomes death in verses 35 to 43. That's the outline we'll follow this morning. Three narratives about the power of the kingdom of Christ and Jesus' authority over the effects of sin on this world. First, Jesus overcomes demons. The first person we see Jesus encounter in the text is a demon-possessed man. He's been tormented for so long, and his situation seems so hopeless that he's relegated to a life among the dead. You can see in verses 2 and 3, he came out of the tombs because he lived among the tombs. Not only does he live among the dead, but he's also terrifyingly strong. He's been bound many times, but he breaks his bonds apart. He's shrieking and screaming all day, every day, even hurting himself in his own torment. This description would be, as one brother said, more fitting of an animal than a human being. In the previous chapter in Mark 4, we saw Jesus face this violent storm at sea. In this chapter, we see Jesus face an equally violent storm inside this man. And we're going to see that Jesus is able to overcome chaos and violence in all its forms. One thing we need to see to make sense of this chapter is how the theme of uncleanness threads the whole thing together. All three stories, including this first one, involve elements of human life in this world that Old Testament religion would have marked as unclean. You can see several of these elements in the text, from the tombs to the pigs, to the blood, to the corpse even at the end. Jesus powerfully purifies all kinds of uncleanness throughout our passage. Now, we don't tend to think in terms of clean and unclean in the same way as they did then, but I think we could make sense of it maybe with the idea of contamination in similar sorts of ways. So just think of an infectious disease, like a flesh-eating virus or like the chickenpox. You don't go near people who have those things unless you want to get them yourself. Their uncleanness will result in your uncleanness if you get close to them at all. Look back at your text in verse 6. The demon-possessed man ran and fell down before Jesus. Which demonstrates physically for us that Jesus is more powerful in this exchange than the demon. It's a physical demonstration of Jesus's greater spiritual authority and power. And if it wasn't clear, verse 7 tells you. The demon cries out, what do you want with me? Don't torment me. That's a paraphrase. It's in response to Jesus calling him out of the man, which you can see in verse 8. But notice the title that the demon uses for Jesus in verse 7. He calls him son of the most high God. No one reading or hearing this should think that that implies the existence of more gods than one. James tells us, even the demons know that there's only one God. Rather, that description is affirming that God is the highest authority in heaven and on earth. No one is higher than him. He's the most high. God is transcendent, exalted above any and all rival powers. And so Jesus, as God's son, has God's Highest authority. When the demon meets Jesus, it's interesting, isn't it, that he assumes Jesus wants to torment him? I think the conflict at least highlights the relationship of hostility between the kingdom of Christ and the spiritual powers which would oppose him. But look at Jesus' tactics in verse 9. Jesus asks for the demon's name. In this context, people thought you had to know a demon's name to cast it out. But notice two things about this exchange which show us something about the power of Christ. First, the demon can't deny Jesus' request. And also in verse 10, notice how the demon pleads with Jesus not to be sent far away. Because the question is not whether the exorcism will happen, but when. And where will the demon be sent? Jesus doesn't even use the name. So don't think that using a demon's name is a formula for exorcism. Names are important, though. And this demon's name reveals something significant. In fact, to refer to it as a single demon isn't quite right, is it? no this is a legion of demons the name signals the context of the armies of rome a roman legion was 4 to 6000 troops the point is not mathematical precision but the stark contrast here we see one man jesus against a spiritual army jesus alone is going to confront Spiritual enemies rival powers that no one can number. The inequality of this conflict only further underscores Jesus as the one with greater authority and power. But do not be deceived. This is not an even match between equal powers. As one fellow said, "When Demoniac meets divine, it's a no-contest event. Because Jesus is stronger than all that he's made. And demons are made. They're created. They're not the creator. Jesus is strong enough even that he's able to make this man well. In fact, Jesus even has to give permission for the move to the pigs in verses 11 to 13. But I do think the focus here is especially on Jesus using his power to make this man well. Well. He's saving him from terrible demon oppression. I think he's even saving his life physically. Because if those demons were willing to slaughter a bunch of pigs, you better believe they'd have kept tormenting and torturing this poor man. His deliverance is as powerful as it is clear and certain. In verse 14, those who watch over the pigs, the herdsmen, they all come to see what happened. And what do they find? Look at verse 15. They all find the man sitting there, it says, clothed and in his right mind. You see what this means, right? They saw this man possessed by demons, hurting even himself. No one had the strength to subdue him. They all thought he was crazy. But now because of Jesus, he's been put in his right mind. Brothers and sisters, this is what happens to us in our conversion to Christ. When we become Christians, we get put in our right mind. Jesus subdues our rebellious wills so that we might know him and love him and follow him. And then people start to see us and to realize there's something different about you. And we know it's because of the Lord's mercy and grace toward us. I mean, just look around at yourselves. Think about your own conversion. Some of us were acting like fools, destroying ourselves, destroying even our lives before Christ came and saved us. I mean, I have friends from college who are shocked to find out I'm not only a Christian but also a pastor. And I'm sure it's the same for many of us here. I mean, even our brother Heath Evans, believe it or not, has been put in his right mind by Jesus. Like this man in our text, we too, church, have been put in our right mind by Jesus. If you're following him, you've been made well by him. Because Jesus has the power to make anyone well. Watch how this transformed man responds to his radical salvation. Though the unbelieving onlookers want Jesus to leave their region due to fear, look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them, might be with him rather. It's a lot like what we saw of the disciples in Mark chapter 3 verse 14. Following Jesus means being with Jesus. Following Jesus means being with Jesus. And when he's changed your life so radically, you just want anything you can get that will give you more of him. That's why those of us who know the grace of Christ love to read the word of God and to spend time in prayer and to fellowship with the church. Those are the ways that we spend time with Jesus today. Receiving the mercy of Christ moves you to seek the presence of Christ all the more. Mercy produces intimacy. But Jesus has better plans in mind. Look at verse 19. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, the demon-possessed man, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus sends the man on mission. I mean, this man has a really unique opportunity. People knew him. They saw his situation, terrible as it was. They thought he was crazy. Now something has radically changed about this man he can now uniquely tell people what happened to him and what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. Receiving mercy means retelling of mercy. It's like this man is the first Gentile missionary in one sense. I realize some of us here might be wrestling with why Jesus is keeping you here in this life when in some important sense, the next life, the one with him forever, would be better for you. It'd be better for all of us. Paul says this in Philippians, right? For me, it's better to depart and to be with Christ. And yet Jesus doesn't give us all himself in the physical presence flesh right now, does he? He keeps us here in this life. Kind of like this man. He begged to be with Jesus, and Jesus said, not yet. So if that's you, and you're wondering, why not now, Jesus? I think Jesus would say to you, go tell people how they too can receive mercy. That's what you're still here for. It's because there's someone who knows you who you need to tell about Jesus because they know you and they saw what happened to you. So tell them what it's about, what it means. Tell them how you have received mercy and what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. Receiving mercy means retelling that mercy. That's our first point, Jesus overcomes demons. Look back at Mark chapter 5. It's not just demons that Jesus overcomes. I think Mark wants us to leave this chapter with the impression that nothing is impossible for Jesus. He means to highlight how all the effects of sin on our world, including sickness which sin brought, are overcome by the kingdom of Christ. So now let's consider our second point this morning. In verses 21 to 34, Jesus overcomes disease. Listen to God's word as I read, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. So that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the report about Jesus Here we see two in despair, on the doorstep of death because of disease. The woman suffered tremendously for a long period of time. The girl suffers severely, but suddenly. Both situations show us how the strength of Christ turns into mercy for those who trust in him by faith. The one who destroys demons is also the one who defeats disease and defies death itself. Because Jesus has the power to make anyone well. This section begins in verses 21 to 23 with Jairus' request for Jesus' help. His daughter is sick, and he begs Jesus to come and to heal her. Jesus agrees and begins to make his way to this man's house in verse 24. On the journey, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd, which includes a seriously suffering woman. Look back at verse 25. It says she suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Based on the commentaries, this would be like a urinary tract infection, which produced prolonged menstrual impurity. You may know from the Old Testament, especially Leviticus 15, This condition is one uncleanness of many that the Old Testament listed as defiled and defiling. So it's not just the woman who was unclean, but anyone who came into contact with her as well. Imagine if you were there like that. Don't forget about the social and religious isolation you'd feel because of your condition. People would be unclean if they touched her. So naturally, they'd want to avoid her altogether. Do you think she'd have actual friends in that state? What about a spouse or children? We're also told that she had this condition for 12 years. Do you realize just how long that is? I mean... Twelve years ago today was the year 2011, believe it or not. Some of the people sitting in this room weren't even born at that point. Some of us hadn't graduated college or high school. Nobody here owned an Apple Watch. It hadn't been invented yet. Almost nobody owned an iPad. It was invented that year. And I had just gotten an iPhone, and I upgraded from a Motorola razor, a flip phone. You remember flip phones? Meanwhile, Arsenio Hall had just won the Celebrity Apprentice, which was hosted by Donald Trump. Here's my point. A lot can happen in 12 years. 12 years is a long time. It's a third of my life. And it's especially long if no one will talk to you or associate with you or be near you because you're unclean. Perhaps you can feel the sense of desperation this woman must have known. What's actually worse than that? In verse 26, she's been to all the doctors. It seems that just like no one could subdue the demon-possessed man, no one is able to help this poor woman. Worse still, the doctors have taken all of her money and left her worse off physically. Even if she isn't dying, I bet she feels like she's close to death. This is the woman we find in Mark 5, looking for any help she can get. And then she runs into Jesus. Her background makes sense of why she thinks of him the way she does. Look at verse 28. If I touch even his garments... I will be made well. You can hear the desperation dripping off the words. And she does touch his garments. And with that touch, this suffering woman is immediately made well. Twelve years of sorrow and social isolation resolved in just a moment. Because Jesus has the power to make anyone well. In some way that I don't totally understand, Jesus realizes this woman has received his healing. So in verse 30, Jesus responds by asking who touched him in this large crowd, which understandably produces the confusion of the disciples in verse 31. What do you mean who touched you? Everyone's touching you. But I think the question is not so much to gain knowledge that he didn't have as it is to get her to do what she does next to come before Jesus. Look at verse 33. The woman came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. I don't think this falling down is the same as the demon did earlier in the chapter, or even the same as Jairus did just before this. That was more like a submission to greater authority, which I think is true here too. But I think the emphasis here is actually on responding in worship to the mercy of God. Now, to be clear, I don't think the touch of the garments per se is what healed her. Why would I say that? There's a lot of people who get healed in the scriptures without touching, and there's a lot of people in this crowd who touch and don't get healed. Jesus tells us how she got healed. In verse 34, he says, your faith has made you well. The woman knew that Jesus could heal her. She knew she had to come to him to receive mercy. Jesus calls that faith. Faith is the only prerequisite for receiving the power of Christ as mercy for you. You need only to believe in him. To come to him with nothing else but trust that he is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do. In response to her faith, Jesus also pronounces the peace of God on this woman. He says, go in peace. Peace is the product of the kingdom of Christ. There's a sense in which everywhere Jesus goes, he lives peace in his trail. Peace, as one man defined it, is a status of wholeness and well-being Because of a right relationship with God. It's wholeness and well being because of a right relationship with God. That's what peace is. It's what all three of the people in Mark 5 receive from Jesus. His power for them becomes mercy on them, and it leaves peace with them. The demon possessed man goes from seemingly crazy to in his right mind. The bleeding woman goes from suffering severely to healed instantly. This is what the peace of Christ does. Now, if you're here today and you're suffering physically, I just want to say I'm so sorry. Be happy to talk with you more about what that's looked like, especially as you've tried to trust God with it. Be honored to pray with you. Our church, I trust, would be happy to help you, to be a blessing to you in whatever way the Lord allows us to do. But I want to be clear I can't promise you on the basis of Mark 5 that you'll be healed by Jesus today. Don't be deceived by false teachers today who say that you haven't been healed because you don't have enough faith. That's just not true. There are a lot of saints in the Bible and in church history who have suffered greatly and had great faith. Jesus does not promise all of us healing at every moment. Much like we saw in Mark chapter 2 earlier this year, the healing of the paralytic, verses 1 to 12, I think this physical healing of one woman points us to a spiritual forgiveness that we all need. That's what I think Jesus' healing ministry is all about, pointing us to a greater problem we all have. We all suffer from sin and sickness because humankind has disobeyed God. Everything. Everything is broken and backwards now in God's good world because of sin. To be clear, I'm not saying you're sick because of your sin necessarily, but I am saying that anyone who's sick is sick always and only because of Adam's disobedience to God. A good God made this good world and everything in it. Originally, things were not like what we experience right now with sin and sickness and suffering and sorrow and death. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. He disobeyed God. He didn't do what God told him to do. He did the one thing God said not to do. And just like him, we all disobey God. Even though God is good and has only ever done good to us, we've sinned against him. We've not done what he told us we should do, and we've done what he told us not to do. And God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners, to put to right the brokenness that sin brought. Every single one of us as a sinner needs to receive the mercy of Christ today. We all need the power of Christ to forgive our sins. Why? Because Jesus alone lived a perfect life, always obeying God, Jesus alone died in the place of sinners like you and like me, and Jesus alone rose from the dead because of God's powerful confirmation of everything he said and did. So if you trust in Jesus today, you can have your sins forgiven. You can have the mercy of God in Christ. And that's what you need more than any physical healing. Because one day we will all die and stand before God and give an account to him for all that we've done. So if you're not following Jesus, I just want to urge you to consider that Jesus can save you. He's the only one who can save you, and you should trust him. be happy to talk with you more after the service about what that might look like for you. All right, we're considering the idea that Jesus has the power to make anyone well. And we've seen in Mark 5 two scenes so far. First, Jesus overcomes demons— Next, Jesus overcomes disease. Let's consider our third and final point now Jesus overcomes death. Listen to God's word as I read in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 35 now. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear only believe, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And told them to give her something to eat. So while Jesus is traveling to meet Jairus' daughter at his house, a report from some of his men comes back that she has died. But in verse 36, we see Jesus' response to the report. He doesn't want his people to give up hope in his power. He says, Do not fear, only believe to Jairus. We considered the interplay of fear and faith last week in the end of Mark 4, but here again we see Jesus wants his followers to have faith over fear. The challenge for Jairus and for anyone who would follow Jesus is whether we will trust God in the face of all circumstances. Church, will you believe in God despite what you see? Or will you require him to work in your way and on your timetable? We must have faith that Jesus is with us, doing good to us, even if we can't see it. Like Jairus, we must not fear, but only believe. Mark tells us in verse 37 that Jesus took only Peter, James, and John, but he doesn't tell us why. This is a common occurrence in the Gospels. For some of the most important or amazing moments of Jesus' ministry, he had only these three men with him. In this instance, it could be one of those moments, or it could be something more practical like the size of the house or the size of the room the girl was in. It's probably best not to speculate since we're not told. Where scripture is silent, we too should be silent. Look down at verse 38. It says, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. I think I've been to a place a lot like this one, and that's the only appropriate sound. It's what you hear from most people, weeping and wailing by almost everyone. But notice how Jesus responds. Look at verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, I want to be clear. This is not Jesus being insensitive to the situation. It's not him confused or trying to be confusing. The girl has indeed died. Verses 35 and 40 of our text to make that clear. So do Mark, Matthew and Luke when they record the same narrative in their parallel accounts. But Jesus compares this death to sleep for a very important reason. It's not final. As one brother said, Jesus accepted the reality of the child's death, but he refused to accept the finality of death. This is a real but temporary death. Why? Because Jesus is about to reverse that reality. Because Jesus has the power to make anyone well. Mark is showing us here how even in the most hopeless of situations, we can trust Jesus. He uses his power to give us mercy. But mark well, church, how scoffers respond to God's word, which we can see in this text too. Look at verse 40. It tells us they laughed at him. Often in response to Jesus' words, those who do not believe believe, laugh. They find his words not credible, but ridiculous. And so he puts them out of the house and takes only the believing father and mother with him to the girl's room. Look at verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Alright, pause. In my house, we have a game called Baby CPR. I don't know why I made this up, but I did. One day I was pretending to be unconscious and I cried out to Phoebe and Polly, my four and two year old, help, I need CPR. They had no idea what I was talking about. So then they started doing it. And I give them fake chest compressions and yes, I actually breathe into their mouth. It's maybe gross, but it's really fun and they love it. (laughs) Baby CPR, you should try it sometime. Jesus is doing nothing like that here. No chest compressions. No breathing into her lungs so she can breathe again. This is not resuscitation. It's resurrection. She's not simply unconscious for a moment. With just a touch of his hand and his powerful word, Jesus raises this girl from the dead. Just as he will one day for all of us if we believe in Jesus by faith. Verse 42 tells us that she got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. She lives again. She's up and walking. I think Mark gives us her age to explain the walking since she's only been referred to as a little daughter previously. But I think it also shows us that no one is too young to receive the mercy of Christ. Jesus has the power to make anyone well. So children, 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 do you believe in Jesus? Just like your parents and me, you have sinned against God. You've not done what he said you should do. But just like your parents and me, there's good news. God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners you too can believe in him you too need to believe in him there's no other way to be forgiven to have the mercy of god to have a relationship with him to spend eternity with him forever we all need that we should all want that i was driving my kids around yesterday in the car and phoebe my four-year-old from the back seat starts saying and that's the gospel truth and that's the gospel truth. And I'm like, what are you saying, Phoebe? And she said, and that's the gospel truth. And I said, what's the gospel truth? She said, Jesus came into the world as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. And three days ago, (laughs) he rose again. I didn't have the heart to correct her. Even a kid can understand the gospel can understand the truth of Jesus from history, the truth of Jesus from Scripture, that Jesus is the only one who obeyed God. He's the the one who died for us who haven't. He rose from the dead, offering us life and forgiveness. So kids, if you can hear my voice, you should believe in Jesus. You're not too young to receive the mercy of Christ. Jesus has the power to make anyone well. Let's look at the last verse, verse 43 now. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The food, I think, confirms that she's alive, just like Jesus ate with the disciples after his resurrection. But the telling everyone not to tell about it is really interesting, isn't it? Why does Jesus want the demon-possessed man to tell everybody and the resurrected girl to tell no one? I think the answer is context. Where Jesus is influences his approach to the ministry with the people there. Where Jesus is influences his approach to ministry with people there. In the Gentile country of the Gerasenes, in verses 1 to 20, there's no false messianic hope to compete with. But Jairus and his neighbors are Jews. Among Jewish people at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, there was both great expectation and great confusion about what Messiah would be like. Many thought him to be a political ruler who would conquer all the nations physically. The secret of Jesus' identity, the reason he tells people not to speak about him, in Mark's gospel, it corresponds to that false expectation, the false hopes about Messiah. But time is on Jesus' side. All things will be made fully known soon enough. So why does Mark put all three of these people together in one place in his gospel? There's the demon-possessed man, the long-suffering woman, and the terminally ill little girl. I think they're all together because they all suffered in seemingly hopeless situations. They all suffered from something that no one on this earth could overcome. No one could subdue the demon-possessed man. No one could heal the long-suffering woman, and no one could save the terminally ill little girl. See, it's only Jesus who can overcome demons, disease, and death. Because Jesus has the power to make anyone well. What is it in your life right now that you need to take to Jesus and to trust him with? What can he alone make well? One day, very soon, his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, and the mercy of Christ will root out all the remaining effects of sin on this world by his power. We are almost home, y'all. Let's pray and ask for God's help to wait well until then. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is powerful and pure. By the power of his kingdom, this whole world will one day be purified. We thank you for these three scenes in Mark chapter 5, which encourage us that we can trust Jesus. He alone has overcome the world. Would you help us all to trust him until the day when he returns or takes us home? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.